Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, if the Lord allows me, I think we may get through with chapter 5 maybe next week, and then we'll have a few in Galatians 6, and we'll be on to something else. Galatians chapter 5, just by way of review like we do every week just for the sake of, t- of context, I want to remind you that the theme of Galatians is our liberty in Christ, and we've seen that chapter 5 and verse 1 is the theme verse, and that stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And we've seen that the context is, the, the purpose of writing is Paul is writing to these Galatian believers, and he's upset because they have allowed these false teachers to come in, these Judaizers, and they have perverted the gospel of grace. They have added works to grace, and they have said, in effect, yes, Jesus Christ is the only way to salvation, but we're the only way to Jesus. Become one of us. Become an Old Testament Jew. Fulfill the law. Males, you must be circumcised or you can't be saved. And that is exactly what the occult does today. There's nothing new. It's just repackaged. And that's the same with the cult, certainly, that, yes, they give Jesus and the cross and grace and all that lip service, but here's where the action is. It's all about our system, our rules, our baptism, our priesthood. And so don't be confused by that. Be very leery of groups that, that talk like that. And now, um, we've seen Paul spend four chapters defending justification by faith and destroying the arguments of these Judaizers concerning Salvation by the works of the law. The law has never saved anyone. It's only served to condemn because we could never fulfill the law. In chapter 5, Paul begins to change gears and he deals with the implications about what we believe concerning salvation because the point is that the born-again Christian who is living the Spirit-filled life, they are the ones that are going to serve the Lord with gladness, with joy in their hearts, It's the legalist who's going to uh, run out of fuel because they're going to burn out because they're trying to operate. They're trying to uh, do spiritual things in the power of the flesh, and you can't do that. You'll get frustrated. Now, last week we looked specifically at the struggle with sin, this this battle between the spirit and the flesh. And when we talk about the flesh, uh, we're not even talking about necessarily the physical body like flesh and bone but we're talking about this unredeemed humanness about us. And understand that when we talk about the flesh, uh, yes, when a person is saved, they're born again. God gives them a new heart, a new nature. Um, The Holy Spirit comes to dwell within a believer, but the old nature has not been completely pushed out. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the psalm before, the old man is dead. Well, that might be true positionally, but practically, he's very much alive. And if you ever start to doubt that, you're ever feeling real sanctified, just wait till somebody's riding that bumper or pulls out right in front of you, and that old man or that old woman will sit up in the casket and wave at you. At least (laughs) he does for me. And um, so the battle is there. And and last week, we looked how to win uh, against the struggle of sin. And we talked about how you must be secure in your salvation. You can't stand against anything if you're not standing on anything. We must stay focused upon the Lord and, and not make our sin bigger than the grace of God. Our focus has to be God if we're to get out of that 
uh, pit that we're in. Uh, we're also to strike a balance between trusting and trying. Uh, we can't sit on our laurels, but at the same t- time, we can't do anything apart from God. So we have to find a balance there. And we're going to continue that thought today, uh, I guess part two of the struggle is real, if you want to call it that. But uh, let's, let's begin in verse 16 for context's sake. I won't begin preaching back there because that's where we were last week. But let's read eight verses this morning, beginning in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in times past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the good spirit here this morning. And uh, Father, for those that have come, I lift up those that are maybe watching from home on the live stream, those that are sick, those that couldn't be here. Uh, God, just bless them in a special way. Uh, Lord, I do pray for Brother Andy as he's traveling and will also be speaking at his grandmother's funeral. Lord, bless him there uh, both today and tomorrow and in the coming weeks. Uh, God, just empty me of sin and self, fill me your Holy Spirit. And God, I just pray for help this morning. That's such a weighty text, such a responsibility. And I just pray that you would make it real to us this morning and that Christ would be magnified in the message. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. So we're looking again at this struggle between the flesh and the spirit, this struggle against sin for the, for the believer. How can we win this struggle? Well, i got three more things that I want to look at, kind of piggybacking on last week's thoughts. Uh, but the first thing that we're going to have to do in this text that we're, we're really honing in Uh, between verses uh, 19 and 23 is really where the meat of the message is found. But the first thing in this text that we see is if we're going to win in the struggle against sin, we're going to have to recognize the enemy. We've got to recognize the enemy. And I, I think this is one of the things that is most missing from the American church. Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, that means to be made clear, or obvious is what that word manifest means, which are these. Uh, And then it goes down the list. Um, Now, or uh, you could back up to verse 16, and it says, This I say, then walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, the Word of God could have just as easily said here, the works of your flesh and my flesh. And the lust of your flesh and my flesh. It's not just something general that, you know, maybe somebody over here struggles with this, but, you know, not me, I'm I'm good. No, it's very personal. It's the lust of your flesh. 
and the works of your flesh. And if we don't take it that personally, then we're not recognizing who the enemy is. Um, We need to understand and recognize that the lost person, the unregenerate person is spiritually dead. They don't even have the Holy Spirit in them to curb their fleshly appetites. The Bible says they are a slave to their sin nature. Um, They are a slave to their own lust and their sinful desires. But understand that while the saved person has been given a new nature, they've not lost the old nature. The old man, as I said, is not dead. Understand that this is scary to me because this list that he's giving of these works of the flesh, he is giving them because he's warning saved people. He is not saying, now, this, this over here, this is just what lost people do and you're not ever going to have to worry about it. No, he's speaking to saved people here. And that's a, that's a scary thing to me. That, that Just what we're capable of, even those that are, are saved and have partaken of the heavenly nature. And understand this list here, I mean, just a few of them. I mean, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry. We're going to get to all these. Uh, but just as a... As a cursory glance, how scary it is. And if you don't think you're capable of this, you better watch out. If you, you know, better take heed. If you think you stand, you'll fall flat on your face. Uh, In order to defeat the enemy, we we must recognize the enemy and understand this. Satan is very real. Uh, He is absolutely walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But Satan is not our worst enemy. I, you know, I get, I get fired up if I paid too much attention to what's going on in Washington. The politicians of every stripe drive me crazy. But guess what? The politicians in Washington aren't our greatest enemy. It's not even your crazy neighbor or your in-laws or outlaws. That's, no, you are your own worst enemy. That person that stares at you every time you look at the mirror, that is your worst enemy. And I tell you, the scariest thing about this to me is all these things on the list, they're not something that is merely a result of uh, outside circumstances. They begin within us. Those desires are already there. It's terrifying to me. It really is terrifying to know uh, what we're capable of. And here's the thing. People do what they want to do, and what our flesh wants to do is evil. Now, this is one thing that this is a really, uh, this was really a point of friction uh, between me and some of the people that I talked to at the fair. Uh, and, and usually this is the point of contention anytime that I'm witnessing uh, in an, a setting outside of church. And that is this, that, you know, people are okay with me saying that there's no such thing as a perfect person because, hey, everybody makes mistakes. But you go to talk about intentional bad things that we do on purpose because we want to, and people don't like to hear that. I walked several of them through the Ten Commandments that thought they were a good person. They admitted they made mistakes, but they're still a good person. And even bringing something up as simple as telling lies. Why do people tell lies? It's because they want to. It's because they see it as being beneficial to them and they have no problem doing that. It's a conscious choice to do something that we all know is wrong for the purpose of trying to benefit oneself. 
That's who we are. That's who we are. That's what our hearts are. We do what we want to do. And we need to be aware of that. Jesus said in Matthew 15 and verse 19, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witness, blasphemies. Why didn't He say out of the heart proceeds good thoughts? and loving thoughts toward your neighbor, and good actions, and faithfulness to your spouse, and always being honest. Why did he say that? Because those things are not within us. And even, and now you say, uh, Pastor Vaughn, can, can even lost people do good things? Yes, they absolutely can. But I think what you'll find, if you really get to examine those things, that even in those situations, it's beneficial to them. Listen, I've seen some of the hardest working people I know don't know God. But guess what? There's a benefit to their labor. Uh, There's a a benefit to avoiding certain consequences. But that doesn't mean that their motive is to serve and love God. Even even that is self-serving. You know, the book of Proverbs says that even the plowing of the wicked is an abomination unto God. Well, why is that? Plowing your field... Uh, working hard, providing for your family. Those are good things. The reason it's an abomination is because they're not doing it to the glory of God. And so even doing the right thing with the wrong motive is an abomination unto God. We don't just make mistakes. We sin against God because we want to. Um, We lust because we want to. We steal, we curse, we cheat. We envy, we hate, you can go down the list. We do those things because that's what's within our nature to do. It comes natural to us. Those are natural. We don't have to be taught to do those things. And we must recognize that we are our own worst enemy. And I cannot stress this enough. Our theology must include a proper anthropology. That's just the study of man or the behavior of man. Because the world gets this wrong, and most of the professing church gets this wrong. You either think that men and women are evil in their hearts, or you think they're basically good. And that is going to affect the rest of everything you believe about God, about salvation, about the cross, about the gospel, about the afterlife and heaven and hell. Wherever you start with that is where you're going to end. And by the way, spoiler alert, the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's no one that understands. There is no one that does good. There is no one that seeks after God. We've all gone astray. Isaiah wasn't so G-rated. He said that our righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. He was referencing rags that you would use to clean oozing sores. That nasty, stench-filled rag, that is our righteousness to a holy God. And so, no, we're not good. The Bible is not ambiguous about that at all. Uh, If you look down all all the times that God looked out of heaven, we're going to talk about this a little bit at the Knowing God study on Friday. I mean, every time He's ever looked out of heaven, you know what He saw? That every heart was wicked. That every imagination was full of evil thoughts continuously. You know what He looks down and sees today? Same thing. Same thing. That's who we are. That's why we needed Christ to pay our sin debt on the cross. That's why we needed grace to save us. 
Because that's who we are. We need to nail that down. We'll look at people as good or evil. Now, I'm sure that we could look at other people and say, well, compared to them, I'm doing all right. But the problem is we're going to be compared and we're going to be judged by the perfectly holy standard of God. That's the problem. And listen, we don't need Christ to be our life coach. We don't don't need Him to be our therapist. We don't need Him to make us a better person. We need Him to give us a spiritual resurrection. We need Him to save us from our sin. Now, for the saved, we need the Holy Spirit and the Word of God to daily mortify the deeds of this flesh, heart and mind, and in order to win the struggle against sin, we must recognize that our worst enemy stares us in the face every time that we look into the mirror. That's horrible that we... We walk around every day with our worst enemy. We can never get away from our worst enemy. And we need God's help so desperately to mortify and crucify the deeds and the desires of this flesh. And I believe that a a saved person is every bit as capable of sinning just like a lost person. I don't believe they can get away with it. I don't believe they can stay there. God promises in Hebrews 12 that the Father chasten those whom He loves. And if you can continue in sin and get away with it, the Bible says that you're a bastard and not a son. That's biblical language. He's saying you're not even a child of mine. You're illegitimate. You don't even belong to me. And so God will, for the saved, He will, as I've said, discipline us as a father, but He'll never punish us as a judge. And so... um, Very, very uh, serious topic this morning of just who we are and and what we battle with and and just what is in our hearts to do. It's it's very sobering. But the second thing that we're going to have to do and have to know in order to win in this struggle against sin, uh, not only are we going to have to recognize the enemy, but we need to reflect upon the reasons. Reflect upon upon the reasons. I'm talking about the reasons why we sin and the specific sins that we struggle with because every person is a little bit different. Um, There may be certain sins that may not uh, appeal as much to another person and vice versa. We may have our own uh, individual struggles. And here's something that I think we really need to recognize as Christians. I didn't realize this for a long time. I thought it was wrong to think like this. Here, you really need to get this. When it comes to sin in the life of a Christian, there are never excuses, but there's always reasons. When it comes to sin in the life of a Christian, there are never excuses and we ought never to offer any, but there's always reasons. Now, I thought about it like this. When, when a football team, doesn't matter college, pro, whatever, when a football team loses a game, and they go back and they look at the film, they're not making excuses for why they lost the game. They're looking for the reasons why they lost the game. And that way they can look at where they went wrong, and that way they can get it right. And if we don't have the ability to examine our lives and do that, and to find out why we can't seem to get out of these patterns, we're going to have problems. So why are you so prone and susceptible uh, to certain sins? I can't completely answer that question for every person. Uh, but I can say that there are certain patterns, I believe, for every sin. And, and, you know, I think sometimes we tend to simplify things a little bit too much. 
uh, and just to prove my point, let's look at the list here. I, I, let's just start with adultery here. That's what Paul did. <clears throat> and so, now we think about the sin of adultery. Now, I mean, obviously, I mean, uh, you know, we're narcissistic at our core, and, you know, we oftentimes walk around with this entitlement mentality, and any time we get unhappy with life or God or our spouse, well, then I, th- I feel like we're open to anything like that. I mean, we could definitely list the reasons and why people do it and what the draw is, uh, but I think that many times it's a little more complex than I, I Listen, I understand we live in a hookup culture. I understand we, have a, we even have apps now to where you can literally find people and hook up with them. It's wicked, straight out of hell. But I, I don't believe, I really don't believe that the overwhelming majority of people go to the marriage altar and say their wedding vows with the intention of committing adultery. I don't think that happens a whole lot. And yet 50% will do that by the numbers. And so why is that? Well, I think adultery in itself is a a fairly complex thing as far as why it happens. And, uh, you know, the experts generally agree. And when I say the experts, I'm talking about the marriage counselors, almost universal about what I'm fixing to say. Uh, They generally agree that by the time the act of adultery takes place, there has been a progression of things that took place line upon line. And I've seen this even in my own counseling of those that have committed such a thing. Well, the first one, this is important to remember. Um, The first step to adultery is to have an imperfect marriage. Guess what? We're already at step one. Uh, there's, there's chinks in our armor. There's breakdowns in our communication. There's issues that go unresolved. We've all been there. So there, we're all susceptible to it. But then the second one is an inadvertent relationship or an unplanned relationship, uh, like maybe a, a coworker you run into at just the right time, and maybe y'all hit it off. Maybe there's some chemistry there. You didn't plan for them to be there, but it, but it happens. It's there. And then uh, that leads sometimes to a third step where you allow yourself into inappropriate situations, maybe allowing yourself to be alone with them or maybe eating at a restaurant by yourself with them. And let me say this, there's a circle that's only big enough for you, God, and your spouse. And if you let anybody else into that circle, you've pushed somebody out. There's just no room for that. And oftentimes that leads to the fourth step which is intimate conversations. And the experts agree that it usually starts out like this. You begin to give compliments to this person that you should probably only be given to your spouse and vice versa. And they say that by the time that you begin to share your marital problems with this person, it's all done but the crime. Which this leads to the final one, and that is the irreversible act. And of course I'm talking about the act of adultery. Um, there's a wonderful book out by Gary and Mona Shriver, their husband and wife. And the book is called Unfaithful. And in fact, for those that I've ever counseled that have dealt with adultery, I have given them this book. And it, Gary Shriver was a very popular Christian radio host uh, on the West Coast. And him and his wife were having some problems, and he ended up having an affair with one of the radio interns for about, the relationship lasted about two years. And uh, finally, this other young intern, this young man, fresh out of Bible college, um, had a lot of zeal about him, no filter, 
And he, he obviously saw how they interacted on the job. He knew what was going on. So he just walked in the radio station one day and talked to Gary, and he just sat down with him, and he said, so does your wife know? And he said, know what? He said, know about you and this woman. He said, what are you talking He said, I'm not stupid. I know what's going on. And he began to really preach to Gary Shriver, and it convicted him so bad, he ended up having to go home. He, had, he stepped down from his radio position for a while, went home and confessed to his wife, and they together co-authored a book about the two years following the confession and how they worked through that and, and their counseling sessions and, and how it had come to that point and, and their counselor walked them through these steps and he realized he was able to go back to the day that it started for him and his heart. Uh, they were, him and his wife were both very um, job-oriented, very career-oriented, very busy. They didn't see each other much. And so he got up early one morning and he cooked breakfast for his wife and she was running out the door and he said, Hey, I've, you know, I got breakfast on the stove here. I wanted to spend some time with you. And she told him, We can spend time together when we retire. And that statement planted a seed in his heart that made him vulnerable to when that intern started working with him. And he went on down the list, and sure enough, just like clockwork, this is how it happened. Now, I'm sure that I could probably go through a similar list for all these other sins. We don't have time for that. But this is just one example. And even, even I would say, even in this list that Paul gives, there seems to be some strategy in the way that they're laid out. And this is important to know this. There's actually three categories of sin here that Paul lays out. The first one is sexual sin. The second one is religious sin. And the third one is sins involving human relationships. I find that interesting. But I'm going to walk through these sins here, and I'm just going to tell you what they mean. We're going to work through these quickly, and we're going to move on. But as we're going through this list... Um, I want you to think to yourself about if you struggle with this, and if so, contemplate the reasons why. What are the patterns? What are you not doing that you're allowing yourself to be vulnerable to this? What are the things that you're doing that puts you in bad shape even before the opportunity comes along? Uh, fornication comes from the Greek word porneia. Now, uh, I often heard growing up that fornication was simply... Uh, sexual sin between single persons, and that's certainly a part of fornication, but I don't think that's broad enough of a definition. Pornea is, is like the big umbrella that encompasses all sexual sin. Even adultery would be under the umbrella of pornea. In fact, pornea is where we get the word pornography from. So it's, it's, it encompasses all types of sexual sin. And I know that you know this, but just for the sake of the society that we live in and restating the obvious, uh, God made marriage, God made sex and all sexual acts and all intimacy of a sexual nature to be between the husband and wife, man and woman, period, paragraph, the end. And everything outside of that is wrong. I don't care what society says. I don't care how you feel. I don't care if that seems like it's archaic and like I sound like a dinosaur right now. That's okay because the Bible's very clear about that. God made sex to be a gift between husband and wife. And there's nothing else that's acceptable. Uh, but then the second one is uncleanness. And this speaks 
uh, of lustful and impure. This can speak of the thought life. It's moral impurity, even in the heart and mind. Uh, lasciviousness. This means unbridled lust. It's a sin that has kind of a shamelessness about it. And when I think about lasciviousness, I was talking about this the other night, even with some of our church members at the banquet. But it really has amazed me. Uh, You know, I was a youth pastor before I was a pastor. Saw a lot of youth come through the church over there. And it's amazing how many kids have grown up. They're young adults now. And it's amazing how many of them we poured our time and energy and love and spent time trying to teach them the Word of God and disciple them and be an example to them. And now they've grown up and they've gotten out of church and they're living like the seventh level of hell. And it reminds me of what Jeremiah said about Judah. They couldn't even blush because they're posting it all over Facebook and they're proud of it. Proud of it. There's a problem with that, friend. That's called lasciviousness. It is a work of the flesh. That's the first category of sexual sin. We're on to the second category of religious sin. Idolatry is the worship of false gods. Now, this could be literal or figurative. Uh, When the Ten Commandments were given, it was in specific reference to the pagan idols, the, the heathen gods of the Israelite neighbors, you know, making gods of wood and stone. But listen... Uh, we've got paper gods in our wallet. You can have gods of fame or gods of fortune or, um, you know, you can make gods out of anything. It's something that gets your passion, something that gets your worship. It's something that gets you uh, fired up and gets you motivated. And that's the things that you're serving. That's idolatry is putting something before God. Um, witchcraft. Now, this is interesting because... Uh, Witchcraft here, in this particular verse, comes from the Greek word pharmakeia or pharmacia. And of course that sounds familiar because that's where we get our word pharmacy from. Now, I want to be specific about this. The the broad definition of witchcraft is this. And once again, I think that we have a way of stereotyping these things and we lose the real meaning. But the, the broad textbook definition of witchcraft is the pursuit of supernatural knowledge apart from God. The pursuit of supernatural knowledge and wisdom apart from God. And if you think about that, I mean, think about tarot cards. What are they doing? They're trying to obtain supernatural knowledge from a source other than God. What about the Ouija board? It's the same thing. It's more than just a kid's game, folks. You can say I'm crazy if you want to, but what are they doing? They're pursuing supernatural knowledge apart from God. And I believe a lot of that stuff is real. It's coming from a supernatural source that ain't God. Who does that leave? It's satanic in its origin. Um, We could go on down the list, uh, fortune telling, you know, the the whole crystal ball thing or, or horoscopes or astrology. What is all that stuff trying to do? It's trying to obtain supernatural knowledge apart from God. Well, specifically to this context, the word pharmakeia is actually used in other places. It's translated sorcery. Well, what is sorcery? Well, that's that's where the pharmakeia comes in. You see, the witches of this day, and even in parts of the world, and in an ancient world, uh, what they would do is they would take uh, hallucinate-type drugs, you know, and the witches would take these drugs 
and it would put them in a trance, and they said that drugs put them in contact with the spirit world, that they could obtain supernatural knowledge from the other side through this gateway of the drugs. Now, that's not, I, mean, I know we don't think in those terms, but that's really a lot about what's going on. I mean, some of the most popular rock and roll songs ever written were written by the people when they were high on drugs. Isn't that something? It opens up a gateway to the spirit world. It's so much more than just a fleshly thing going on. That's why we ought to stay away from it. Um, That's uh, works of the flesh. Now we work into our third category of sins here, uh, the sins involving human relationships. We see hatred, which is hostility towards others, uh, even to a level of wanting to harm them or violence. Uh, Variance is contention, and I would say most specifically even between family members. Um, Proverbs 13 and verse 10, it said, Only by pride cometh contention, but with a well-advised is wisdom. Then we have emulations, which is jealous anger. It's It's a resentment, it's a bitterness against others. Now, see, these sins here, I'll tell you why they're so dangerous. Because somebody may actually have the ability to hide them most, if not all the time. And yet those sins are just destroyed. They're festering in the heart. Emulation, jealous anger, wrath, fits of anger towards others. Strife, a competitive spirit in which you put yourself before others. You, you want to make sure you get while the getting is good, regardless of what others might get. Uh, seditions is purposely causing division. Heresies is division through false witness or through lies. God hates that. Uh, envyings, that's the scorn at the success of others. Have you ever been upset because good things happen to other people? Boy, we need to be careful with that. Might get upset somebody got a promotion at work that you got passed over for, or maybe somebody gets a house that you couldn't afford, or got that car that you can't afford. Uh, Does it bother you when other people succeed? That's what envy is. It's a scorn at the success of others. Murders is to slay someone both literally or maybe only in your mind, that kind of hatred. God hates that too. Uh, Drunkenness. Uh, to become, obviously to be intoxicated. Uh, revelings, that means to let loose or riot. It's kind of, I guess the nightlife is what we might call that, revelings. But um, there's a very serious warning, and I can't pass this up before we get to my last point. Uh, in verse 21, there's a very serious warning here. It says um, in the very last part of verse 21, they, uh, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I want to be very careful to interpret this properly because I feel like a lot of people have misinterpreted it. Um, now, that's very scary. They which do these things, and by the way, this is not an exhaustive list. That's why he said those that do such things. He didn't say that those that do the, just these things, but those that do such things or these kinds of things shall not even inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, people that do these things, they go to hell. They don't go to heaven, they go to hell. There's no more serious warning in all the Bible, and that ought to make all of us swallow a little bit, maybe make our Adam's apple bob just a little bit. And why is that? Because there's not a single person in here that has been saved any length of time that has not done at least some of these things. 
So what does that mean? Are we lost? Did we ever get saved? Or, or now that we've done these things, do we have to get re-saved? Well, we know that's not true because we can't lose our salvation. So what does it mean? I mean, especially if you think about it. I mean, Jesus said, even if you look with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you've hated somebody, you've murdered them in your heart. So he's even worried about sins of the heart. What does this mean? Well, I think the key word here is that he... He says here that they which do such things. He didn't say they which have done. They which do. And see, that speaks of a continual thing, a practice, a continual committing of these things. This is not, in other words, uh, this is not just the exception for you. This is the rule. This is who you are. And I think that's the key term here. In other words, let me say this. If I'm saved, positionally in Christ, and I am saved, I am a saint. Y'all looking at St. Brandon this morning. I may not always look like it, may not always act like it, but positionally, that's what I am. And if you're saved, that's what you are. You don't have to wait to die and have a bunch of Catholic cardinals figure out whether or not you're worthy of sainthood. When Paul spoke to the churches like Ephesus, he called them saints. What does saint mean? It, It means most holy thing. Positionally, I'm a saint. I'm a most holy thing. My position in Christ never changes. But boy, my practice sometimes is not reflective of my position. And as I said, there's great consequences for these things. Horrible consequences. But not the loss of salvation in the child of God. And so positionally, listen, I'm not an adulterer. uh, But for the Christian, let me ask you this. Do you think it's possible for a truly born-again Christian to commit full-blown adultery against their spouse? Do you think that's possible? Of course it is. So are they an adulterer on their way to hell? Or are they still positionally a child of God who has committed adultery and will have to face the consequences for that? It's the latter, isn't it? What about uh, fornication? you think Christians can do that? So are they a fornicator on their way to hell? Are they positionally a child of God who has committed fornication and will face the consequences for that? Not losing their salvation, obviously. That's not one of them. Um, I mean, we can go down the list here. Um, All of them are possible to some degree or another. And so, once again, we need to be secure in our salvation. And if we are, we're not going to want to do that. We're not going to want to sin against God. We're not going to do those things. And, And so, are these the norm for you? You should be concerned about that because he said if it is, you're on your way to hell. That's what he said. Have you messed up in these areas? Have you repented? If these things are in your heart and life, why? What are the reasons? Not excuses. What are the reasons? It asks those questions. But then thirdly and lastly, and I'm done. I'm, I'm coming in for a landing here. But number three, if we're going to win in the struggle against sin, we're going to have to recognize the enemy. We're going to have to Uh, realize the reasons, but we're also, number three, we're going to have to relish the good. Relish the good. Look at verse 22. And I probably will preach on this more in depth next week because this is too important just to pass over. Uh, Paul begins here with a but here. He is making a contrast between the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. He is showing the heinous nature of our fleshly person versus the beauty of a Christian walking in the Spirit. And I've got to be honest with you, this text for me over the years and even, even studying this week is one of the most convicting texts in all the Bible. 
God has not one list, but two lists. And I do, I've been doing pretty miserable at both of them, I think. And uh, boy, it just lets us know how, how miserable we are apart from the grace of God. But he said, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Now, let me say this. It isn't enough just to say, I don't want to do these bad things. That's a great start. I don't want to do these sinful things. But it can't stop there. We can't just live a life of avoidance or or just commit to total abstinence from everything uh, just by itself. That cannot be an end within itself. It's a good step, but it's not the end. We must not just live a life of avoidance. We must live a life of pursuit. And without a transcendent cause, without a cause greater than ourselves, that being the Lord Jesus Christ, we have nothing of any real value to pursue anyway. Notice Paul. I I just love that but there. He is giving a contrast here. And notice here that uh, when we talked about the works of the flesh, he used that word, works. Works of the flesh. But he doesn't say works of the Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit. Because listen, works come naturally. They're manufactured in our heart. Like John Calvin said, our hearts are an idol factory. They just come naturally. That's who we are. The fruit of the Spirit has to be produced from a source of life outside of ourselves. Fruit cannot be manufactured. It's a living thing. It comes from a living thing. It's actually, fruit is produced from the overflow of the sap from either the tree or the vine or whatever it's plugged into. Uh, that's so important because I think about what Jesus said in John 15 and verse 4. He says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can you except you abide in me. And he goes on to say in the next verse that apart from me you can do nothing. Whereas the works of the flesh come naturally to us, the fruits of the Spirit have to be produced from a foreign source, that being the Holy Spirit of God. The works of the flesh are natural. The fruits of the Spirit are supernatural. And if listen, if we're going to win against the struggle against sin, give me three minutes and I'm done. You, you need to hear this and I need to hear this. We must desire to produce fruit for the Lord and not just to avoid sin. It's not enough just to not want to hate. We should also want to show the love of Christ to others. It's not enough just to want to avoid unhappiness. We ought to desire the joy of the Lord in our hearts. It's not enough to try to avoid doubt. We should want to live a life uh, of and by the faith of Jesus Christ. Listen, I I don't want to just lack harshness. I want to be gentle like Christ, and I need help with that. I'm not a naturally gentle person. I'm like a porcupine. And I'm telling you, I need to, more, I, I need to be more gentle even in my family. To my wife and children, I'm telling you all that as a pastor of this church, I'm telling you all that. I need more gentleness in my life. Pray for me that I wouldn't just desire not to be harsh, but I, I would desire to be gentle like Christ is. Um, it, it's not just enough... I don't want to just not be a bad person. I want to be a good example of Jesus Christ. I want to be a good ambassador for Christ. I want to be patient. I want to be meek. I want to have self-control. But I can't do it apart from Christ and His Word and His Holy Spirit, and you can't either.
If we're going to win the struggle against sin, we've got to recognize the enemy. That's us. We've got to reflect upon the reasons that we struggle with certain sins. There's always reasons, but there's never excuses. Thirdly, we're going to have to relish the good. I don't want to just not be bad. I want to be a good Christian. We can't do it apart from Him. We've got to abide in the vine. We've got to abide in Christ. And that fruit is going to be a byproduct of abiding in Him. Those things are not natural within us. They have to be Him flowing in and through us. That's how we win the struggle against sin.